Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. SIAC is a university-wide multidisciplinary initiative that facilitates collaborations and builds on the expertise of our researchers to address the region's challenges. If you'd like to know more about SIAC's latest activities, click on the links included on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts about Southeast Asia, Check out the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre's podcast series, SIAC Stories, available on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. Another great sponsor of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned research centre committed to the study of and engagement with Asia and the Pacific. The Institute's research focuses on politics, security and economic development, emphasising the enhancement of links between businesses, governments and academia. For more information on Griffith Asia Institute's activities, click on their website link on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Patrick Jory. I teach Southeast Asian history at the University of Queensland, and I'm co-host of this channel. Joko Widodo, or Jokowi as he's popularly known, famously rose from a riverside shack to become president of Indonesia in 2014. In a country better known for decades of authoritarian rule, Jokowi's story has captured the imagination of observers of Indonesia, hopeful for the country's transition to democracy. Ben Bland's Man of Contradictions, Joko Widodo and the Struggle to Remake Indonesia is the first English-language political biography of Indonesia's president. His book goes behind this remarkable story to try to understand who Jokowi really is. And he argues that the contradictions apparent in Jokowi the politician reflect the deep contradictions of the Indonesian nation. Jokowi represents both the potential of Indonesia as well as its limitations. Today I'm talking to the book's author, Ben Bland. Ben is director of the Southeast Asia program at the Lowy Institute, a foreign policy think tank based in Sydney, Australia. Ben, thanks so much for coming on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to talk about your book, which is hot off the press. I think it came out in September, right? Yeah, exactly. And great to be with you, Patrick. Thanks for having me. Uh, Thanks for giving us a chance to interview you about the book so soon after its publication. Now, uh, reading the book, I got a sense that whatever you think about Jokowi and Indonesian politics, you have a, a real attachment to Indonesia. Could you tell us how you became interested in Indonesia and Southeast Asia more generally? I'm glad that came through because that's one of the things I was trying to make sure was in my book. There wasn't just, you know, a story about Jacoby and about Indonesia, but I wanted to, to share my enthusiasm. And it's a book for general readers, really. And I want to get more people interested in Indonesia and, and Southeast Asia. So for me, I guess it's quite a cliched story. I grew up in the UK, in London, and set to go to university to study history, but didn't really feel quite ready for that. So I took a year out and um, ended up teaching English as a volunteer at a university in Hanoi in Vietnam back in 2001 for six months. And afterwards, I traveled down through Southeast Asia, ending up in Sumatra for a few weeks. 
and just was fascinated by Southeast Asia. That was my first trip to Asia. It was my first time living in a communist country in, in Vietnam. And when I studied history, I was lucky enough that one of my professors was a professor of Southeast Asian history as well. So all these sort of disparate and random decisions and factors came together um, in that context. So I, I really got into studying the history of the region. Then I went to do a master's at SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies in London in Southeast Asian history, got deeper into it and decided that whatever I ended up doing, um, I really wanted to learn more about Southeast Asia and try and understand how the contemporary situation related to the creation of these nations out of really the, the arbitrary limits of colonial rule in, in many cases. So why did you decide to write a biography of Indonesia's president? Again, I think it's this combination of, of interest and luck. After I finished my master's, I was thinking about doing a PhD and for better or worse, I went into journalism instead and ended up as a foreign correspondent. Well, I didn't end up, I'd worked really hard to become a foreign correspondent in Southeast Asia. It wasn't easy. I started out as a freelancer, a jobbing hack and eventually got a gig with the Financial Times, the international uh, business newspaper. So I worked for a while in Hanoi for the FT, which was great to be back. And then in 2012, the FT asked me to move to Indonesia to be based in Jakarta, which was great, a bit intimidating because I'd studied Indonesian history and I'd started to learn Indonesian. But it's very different when you're thrust onto the ground as a then relatively young foreign correspondent trying to make sense of things. And very early on, I started covering the Jakarta gubernatorial election campaign of 2012, when there was this outsider who was running to shake up the race against the incumbent. His name was Joko Widodo or Jokowi. At that time, he was the mayor of Solo, which is his home city, also known as Surakarta in central Java. So this was a, a fascinating moment. And I was lucky early on to get to his campaign rallies, to get to interview him and just have a taste of Indonesian politics. And then because of the openness of Indonesia to foreign correspondents. I was really able to track Jokowi's rise over the years, interview him a number of times as he rose from mayor to governor of Jakarta to president of a country of 270 million people, and to get to know as well many of his advisors and ministers and supporters as I traveled all around the country on many, many occasions. So I think it was partly the chance to be there, to have the access. But I also felt that Jokowi and to a broader extent Indonesia, you know, they were quite misunderstood in the broader media dialogue, in the broader way in which um, analysts and policymakers talked about the country. I felt people were missing a few things and there were lots of sort of great academic works um, that shone a spotlight. And really, I, I thought there was value in drawing together the threads of my experience, of my research, of all this great academic work done by, by so many brilliant Indonesianists and trying to basically paint a picture of the man and the country. And I felt there was this mirroring effect, if you like, and um, that you alluded to earlier between Jokowi and some of his contradictions and some of these wider tensions in Indonesian history that I felt were still playing out and still really framing the debate. So so often you'll, you'll read discussions about what's happening with Islam in Indonesia, what's happening with the latest economic policy, and it's always discussed in very recent terms, but I sense there were these deeper currents of history, and to me, Jokowi seemed kind of stuck you know, amid these wider forces. So I wanted to try and write something quite ambitiously in, in 140 pages, which is the Penguin special format um, that I was constrained to. I wanted to write something that really told us who's Jokowi, what's his story, and how does that connect to Indonesia's story? Now, Jokowi uh, grew up under the New Order military regime. What were the formative influences on him during this period that turned him into the politician that he is? 
it's quite difficult to get at the formative influences of Jokowi because he's not a man who says much. When you sit down to interview him, as I did about 10 times, and I had several meetings with him that weren't on the record, as it were, he's a man of few words. He tends to repeat these same lines about how he sees the world and what he's trying to do. And then when you look back in his history, if you look at what he said about himself in his ghostwritten autobiography, for example, he talks about as, as a student at a time when other students were risking a lot to fight against the authoritarian Sahata regime. He was more interested in climbing mountains and listening to heavy metal music than going to the cafes to discuss politics. So from what I see, um, and I, I certainly don't have the full picture yet, he was really influenced by this desire to get ahead in life. And um, he'd come from relatively humble origins. His, he talked about how his family were evicted from their small houses um, in the kind of poor areas of Solo on various occasions. And he was really driven by this desire, he says, to build up a better life for himself and for those around him. He talks a lot about his father, who was an itinerant uh, bamboo hawker who had no fixed market stall. He really struggled to get by. And Jacoby talks about learning a lot from father's hard work, from his sense of sacrifice. And we can really see that Jacoby went on to study forestry at very good university in the nearby city of Jakarta. Then he briefly worked for a state-owned forestry company in the province of Aceh and then came back and started his own business because he had an uncle who had done, I think, better than other members of the family who had his own small wood business. Um, and Jacoby learned from him, then set up his own small furniture factory. So it's just driven by this sense of those around him wanting to get ahead, to drag themselves up through their own hard work, their own endeavors. He was also influenced by the political atmosphere around him. It wasn't easy to start your own business during that period. Obviously, there was a lot of cronyism and corruption and nepotism in the Sahato administration. And I think even for small business people, it, it wasn't a straightforward time. So he had a struggle to pull himself up. But I think he was also framed by that experience. So many of us, right, uh, are really, we are framed in the way we see the world by our time as a young adult uh, in the early years of our career. And, and Jokowi's early career was during this repressive time for Indonesia when there was a focus on economic development, moving ahead in life. And I think we see that play out later in his presidency with this kind of laser-like focus on economic development overall else, which I think really mirrors the Indonesia that he saw as, as a young furniture maker. This may be a slightly unfair question, but it struck me while reading the book, it, it's about the president of Indonesia, but in recent years, Asia seems to have thrown up a number of these types of populist politicians. I'm thinking of people like Thailand's former Prime Minister Taksin Chinawat, or even India's Narendra Modi, and perhaps even uh, Rodrigo Duterte in the, in the Philippines. So is Indonesian politics sort of following a broader populist trend in Asia where, you know, old institutions like the military and the bureaucracy or old, old political parties that have been around since independence, seem to be you know, being challenged by outsider populist politicians. I think it certainly appears that there's a trend, but I, I struggle with this somewhat, I think, because of my background, having studied history. Uh, my professors always imbued me with a scepticism of grand theory and grand trends, and I think I've all been imbued with that desire to search for the, the ambiguity and the contingency. Um, and I think populist, populism... It's somewhat of an overused term. I mean, it doesn't mean that everyone is misusing it, but a lot of people are using it to describe so many kinds of leaders, usually ones that they don't like, right? Um, that I'm not sure how much meaning it has anymore. And we, we can go back, I think it was a conference in the 1960s at the London School of Economics when the term was emerging. And I think they concluded that no one knew what populism meant, but it was really important to keep discussing it. 
Um, so I'm, I'm reminded of that when I think about Jacoby, because if you think about some of the popular, for want of a better word, you know, aspects of populists as they're discussed in, in the academic literature and in the wider public debate, you think about things like the, the divisive rhetoric, the claim to be the sole representative of the sovereign will. You can look at the, the very intemperate language used by people like Duterte, Bolsonaro, Trump. And, and Jokowi, while he obviously rose to power on this kind of connection that he projects to the people, he's never claimed to be the sole voice of, of the will of the Indonesian people. He's a much more gentle character. He doesn't use divisive rhetoric, but for sure, and I know we'll talk about it later, there has been this kind of rising power towards the, the military and the police, a growing authoritarian turn, as it's been called under his watch. So that's definitely the case descriptively, but I'm not sure it's that helpful to paint him in this broader picture because I actually think he's quite a different guy. And in fact, the person that Jokowi beat to the presidency twice, Prabowo Subianto, former special forces general with a long track record of allegations of human rights abuses and a very hot temper. He's more like the classic populist, the Duterte figure, the Bolsonaro, the Trump, then Jokowi. And Indonesian voters twice opted for Jokowi over Prabowo, although, of course, Jokowi then brought Prabowo into his cabinet last year. Indonesian politics always being ever confounding, you know, when you think the people have decided X over Y, the politicians decide something else. So I think there's something there in, in the populist question, but but I see it's more useful to actually look into Indonesian history than to compare him to these other figures, actually. One of the themes of the book is Jokowi's undoubted charisma. And, you know, while he's a self-made businessman, you know, the first Indonesian president to come from such a background, you write that he seems to embody older traditions of Javanese leaders. For example, you know, his, his calmness, you mentioned a minute ago, he doesn't say very much, his you know, imperturbability. And in one place, you refer to Benedict Anderson's famous article, The Idea of Power in Javanese Culture. Can you say a little bit more about uh, Jokowi's charisma? And whether you think, actually to come back to, the, to your point you just made, whether he's a really sort of a new type of politician or if he's actually embodying uh, this older tradition. It's a fascinating question. I think this is where, you know, my theme of contradictions comes in. I mean, I should be clear that it's a theme. It's not an academic framework that I'm setting out a new theory, you know, to explain all Indonesian politics. On, on the contrary, as, as I suggested earlier, I'm personally in my own writing quite skeptical of you know of grand theories as, as a good way to explain things but I do sense this theme and so on the one hand he is a very different kind of politician because he emerged through the democratization of Indonesian governance at a local level and then at a national level so he was the first leader from outside the elite he came to power through winning a series of local elections and then the presidency and by delivering a track record, I think, of solid, if not spectacular performance as a local leader, cleaning up polluted rivers, improving slum areas, refurbishing rundown markets, etc. So there was something different about the way he came to power. But as you say, there's also something similar in the way that he falls back on these Javanese aphorisms. I think there's an echo there of Sahato, uh, the way in which he can be this as say, some would say a populist figure without actually saying much, but it's all implied. I think there is something Javanese about that. And also in the way that Jokowi is so contradictory. I mean, Benedict Anderson talked about the concept of power in Jakarta, the idea of power in, in Java, sorry, um, really being about the concentration of power rather than using it. 
And you also talked about how the man of power, using a capital P in Ben Anderson's very pretentious way, the man of power can you know, embody this idea of having sort of antagonistic opposites contained within him. And in that, in that way, he's absorbing the power of all these different ideas. Look, I think it's an interesting concept. But again, I think there's the limit to any one explanation to describe the whole of Jokowi, the whole of Indonesian politics. So I think it's foolish to imagine there isn't something culturally different about Java that influences Indonesian politics and leaders. But I don't think we can fall for cultural essentialism either. And I think that's the problem with with so much of the debate, right? You either go all in, a la Ben Anderson, or you say this is all nonsense. This is irrelevant. Indonesia is just a country like any other. Well, of course it is, but it does have its own cultures and traditions. And, and Jokowi is very much in that spirit. So I think it goes to explain for example, while he probably hasn't handled the COVID-19 pandemic particularly well, he remains remarkably popular with Indonesian voters if you look at the latest opinion polling by reputable agencies. And I think that's partly because of this ability to connect with Indonesian voters really without saying much. And that was one of the things I found so fascinating about him when I first met him in 2012, that he'd really electrified this campaign for Jakarta governor but he didn't say much. And I was, as an outsider, it was so curious to me that you could have a leader who doesn't use the speechifying narrative politics, which is really the way it's done in so many places now. But he had this, this more kind of intrinsic or instinctive connection to people um, that could be so transformative with so few words and so little policy. In the book, you write about one of the ways that Jokowi shows himself to be a man of the people, as it were is his penchant for doing, I think you call it blusukan, a Javanese term. I hadn't heard of it before. Can you tell us what blusukan is and how it's characteristic of Jokowi's style of doing politics? Jokowi didn't invent blusukan, but I think he he made it his own and he pushed the idea to the forefront so much so that now many other politicians in Indonesia who want to become successful have been aping his methods. And blusukan is really spot check if you like so it's when you know the leader the local leader or politician or official goes to the ground as Jacoby would put it and goes to see things for his own eyes to listen to the people's complaints and to try and resolve their problems and you say he wasn't the first to do it but he really made it his stock in trade in in 2005 when he was running for mayor of Solo and then when he became mayor and I think there was a sense at that time in the city a small city of 500,000 people but quite a troubled one, a lot of uh, social frictions, a lot of economic inequality in in Solo. So he really wanted to embody this new way of doing things that seemed more responsive. So on his first day in, in City Hall in Solo in 2005, he ordered the senior bureaucrats out of their offices to go and talk to people about access to education, because one of his promises in the election had been improved education, especially for poor people who were struggling to get places in schools. So he, he took these civil servants out of the office, which I think was a very uncomfortable thing for them. And it's partly about getting them to work harder and listen to the people. But it's also, if you like, a public relations move to show to, to the voters, to show to the media uh, that he's doing something to have action for journalists to see and report on and to show them that he is a man of the people. So that really became his stock and trade. So even once he was governor of Jakarta, a city of 10 or so million people, but really 30 or 40 million once you include the, the exurbs, you know, he would climb into drains to look at blockages, you know, very curious thing. I can't imagine many other leaders of a major city doing that sort of thing. And 
yeah, some of his opponents would say this was all just PR. How can you govern by going to see every problem for yourself? And I think we see the limitations of this approach really emerge once he was the president. But I could see that coming. And I remember asking him after he'd won the presidency, but while he was still governor of Jakarta, you know, what are you going to do once you're in, in the presidential palace? You can't go and inspect on the ground across a country of 270 million people. And his view was basically, no, I can. It's the same. I'm just, you know, more powerful. And I think we've seen the limitations really of this approach because not only sort of in security terms, are you surrounded by these thousands of the Paspan press, the presidential bodyguards, and is every trip you make around the country uh, highly stage managed so that there's nothing really authentic about it anymore. But also, how can you hope to to scale that up across such a big country spread over so many islands? It's, it's not really feasible. And again, I think that's one of the, the contradictions of Jokowi that he got to the top by going to the ground, but you can't manage the country in that way. Another of the themes of the book is Indonesia's ambivalence, even sometimes outright hostility towards liberalism, both economic and political. And, and you argue that's been present really since the early years of Indonesia's independence. And 70 years later under Jokowi, it's, uh, this tradition still seems to be present. Can you see any sign that Jokowi wants to move Indonesia away from that kind of uh, default position of ambivalence towards liberalism? I think what's important to understand here is Jokowi is not a man who's interested in ideology at all. And I think in that he reflects for better and probably to a great extent for worse, you know, the nature of Indonesian politics more generally, which is all really about money and power. There's almost no ideology there, but there are these kind of intrinsic settings or tensions, which I think date back to, to independence. So I don't think Jokowi is, is a man who thinks about ideology, who thinks about ideas generally. He's really a man of action. But he embodies this yeah, ambivalence, as you say, towards liberalism. So on the one hand, as a former furniture maker, he's always wanted to see Indonesia's economy grow. He's talked a lot about making it easier for businesses to get licenses from the government to do the things they need to do, making the business environment more helpful for domestic and foreign investors, improving job creation, etc. But on the other hand, he's also embarked on this move to increase the role of Indonesia's quite influential but often overlooked state-owned enterprises. He's nationalized a number of key oil and gas and mining projects. And so I think we see him taking this strange path, which in the outside world, particularly in the investment community and the World Bank, the financial press, he's presented this kind of economic liberal reformer but then you see this complete other side to him and there I think he reflects this deeper tension that in Indonesian history liberalism was always seen as the handmaiden of colonialism and imperialism and it, it was economic liberalism that you know brought the Dutch in a sense to Indonesia to exploit its people and resources and really destroy the country so I think there's been that desire to push back against that Indonesia's constitution talks about the family basis of the economy. It talks about the state having control over resources, over land and water. And these aren't, to my mind, kind of throwaway lines. You know, there's something strong in there pushing back against this idea of liberalism. But on the other hand, Indonesia, like many other emerging countries, has always needed foreign capital and technology to advance. And whenever it's gone too far down the autarkic path, as it did under Sukarno, the, the founding president, it's led almost inevitably to economic collapse. So I think there's this great unresolved question then about the makeup of the Indonesian economy. How is it going to be oriented? And no one's really come to a solution. But I think 
what outsiders, especially in the financial press, in, in the financial community, often fail to, to see is just how toxic even the word liberalism is in Indonesia. It's actually, you, you know, it's a word used to beat people up with politically. It's not a neutral concept in any sense. And despite that, I say there are a number of liberal style reforms that have taken place in Indonesia over the years. So it's not a clear cut case. But I think it's important for people to understand this unresolved question, which Jokowi himself doesn't really have a clear position on. And I think that in the end undermines his ultimate aim to improve the investment climate because he hasn't been able to bring in a stable environment for investment. I mean, I think it's totally okay. It's legitimate for Indonesia to have a protectionist orientation or to pursue industrial policy in the way that Taiwan, Japan, Singapore, South Korea did in their periods of takeoff growth in the 60s and 70s and 80s. But what they also had was stability. So they were able to set up a system where it was clear these sectors are open for foreign investment up to this limit. These areas are not. You know, these state-owned companies or these local companies will be supported, but you must compete in the global market to show that you're worthy of state support. And I think he hasn't been able to get to this clear position. I think that's partly because he's not a man who thinks about these questions. He, he just sees things in practical terms. But I think you can't overcome such a deep question just by, by practical action on the ground. It really you know, needs some sort of banging of heads together and you know, some deeper thought about how to orient Indonesia so that popular aspirations for a more nationalistic and protectionist economy and Indonesia's needs for foreign capital and technology can be brought together in some sort of stable position that allows Indonesians to be happy with the situation, but also the country to get the money and technology it needs to generate enough jobs for the two to three million young Indonesians who are entering the workforce every year now and simply don't have adequate access to proper employment prospects. And that's obviously been made much worse by the pandemic. Continuing on this theme a little bit, a lot of people who read the book might be disappointed to, uh, to hear that even though he's really good at democratic politics, he doesn't seem to be particularly interested in democracy as an abstract ideal. He's, as you say, his real focus is on the economy, especially infrastructure. Is it too simplistic to say that maybe Western observers of Indonesia want democracy and liberalism while Indonesians want economic growth? I think that's a very good point. I, I try hard not to be too finite about these things because sentiments can change. But I think if you look at the survey data, it certainly seems to be the case that Indonesian voters share, in a sense, you know, Jokowi's illiberal view or pragmatic view, you might call it, if you're being more charitable, of democracy as, as really a tool to drive economic growth. Certainly, you know, they share his economic nationalistic tendencies, perhaps they even lean stronger in, in that sense. And I think there is an issue here with outsiders' expectations for Indonesia. I think because Indonesia did such a good job of building free and fair contested elections after the ouster of Suharto in 1998, especially when we compare it to countries you study like like Thailand and, and Myanmar, which has really been very difficult and much more problematic transitions if the transitions have even happened. I think people got a bit carried away and that was sort of inflated, if you like, by a lot of political leaders, Barack Obama, Malcolm Turnbull and others. You know, constantly talking about Indonesia as this beacon of democracy for Southeast Asia, a beacon of democracy for the Muslim world more, more generally. So I think Pete, that was very unhelpful. There was this classic Time magazine front cover after Jokowi was elected president, which called him a new hope for democracy. And I think there wasn't enough work on what Jokowi actually thought, because I remember at the time talking to him and, and the people around him, and it was pretty clear to me he wasn't a reformer in the sense that people out side thought he was. First of all, as I said, he was a man of action, not a man of ideas. 
He was also an incremental leader who, even in city government in a city of 500,000 people, he told me how it took him three years to win the trust of the civil servants in Solo City Hall. So he worked very incrementally and he worked with the elites, with the powers that be. Another difference from populists that he doesn't stand against them explicitly, but he actually works with the powers that be. So I always thought that, you know, Jokowi wasn't this sort of great hope for democracy. The, the issue is, of course, he embodied that because he was the first leader from outside the elites, because he'd used the free and fair elections, you know, brilliantly. And he delivered or, you know, he at least appeared to deliver, I think we can say, on many fronts in terms of, you know, what he'd promised the voters of Solo and to a lesser extent, Jakarta. He was only there for, for two years or so. So I think in that sense, people were right to say that he embodied something new about Indonesian democracy. But I remember sitting down with him in 2013, I think it was, and trying to push him on what he thought democracy was. And he just said, oh, democracy is improving the lives of the people. And I don't think he was being evasive. I think that's actually how, how he sees it. At this point, we need to pause for a break to hear from our sponsors. But when we come back, I'd like to discuss what some people have called an authoritarian shift in Jokowi's politics. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. That's seasiainstitute as one word. Welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, where we're talking with Ben Bland about his new book, Man of Contradictions, Joko Widodo and the Struggle to Remake Indonesia. The theme of the second part of the book really starts with the the Ahok incident, when Jokowi's political ally, a popular Chinese Christian governor of Jakarta, whose nickname is Ahok, is accused and eventually jailed for blasphemy by his political enemies. And this event seems to have forced a change in Jokowi's politics. He appears to have co-opted both the military and, to a certain extent, Islamist forces, which some people have suggested represents an authoritarian turn. Is this a fair judgment? I I think it broadly is a fair description of of what's happened. I think Jokowi was really shaken by this mass movement against Ahok to unseat him, which was also really a proxy from some of Jokowi's opponents, including Prabowo, Anis Baswedan, um, who's now the governor of Jakarta. He won the election after Ahok was convicted of blasphemy. So yeah, there was this movement against him on the ground. and I think it took Jokowi by surprise. He's someone who in Solo um, and in Jakarta, worked with a Christian deputy. He's someone who I think embodies the sense of pluralism in Indonesia. He's happy to work with with all kinds of people. But I think he's someone who is also uncomfortable as a leader when faced with crises. He, He was really knocked off balance, as were some of the people around him and the law enforcement, I think, in particular. And there was a sense that They'd allowed certain forces, radical or conservative forces, to get out of hand. And they needed a better approach to get on top of this challenge, which I think they thought was a threat to Indonesia's pluralism. But I think, as as a lot of um, academics have argued, it was really kind of fighting illiberalism with illiberalism. So Jokowi and, and those around him opted for this policy of really, on the one hand, coercion of some of the hardline um, Islamists, but also co-optation of others, including conservative cleric Ma'ruf Amin, who'd been a witness in the blasphemy trial against Ahok. That was how he was ousted, these claims that he'd blasphemed against Islam and against the Quran, which were probably 
questionable. So this guy who was the chief witness against Ahok, Jokowi appointed him unexpectedly at the last minute as his vice presidential candidate in 2019. And that actually helped Jokowi uh, to be re-elected with a bigger margin. So it, it worked in a sense politically, but it's made a lot of people in Indonesia in the civil society space very uncomfortable. Um, Jokowi has increasingly as well surrounded himself with former police and former military generals. Um, and there's really been this securitized approach, I think, to the public sphere. So we increasingly see government critics facing prosecution under Indonesia's quite vague laws about online communications and a variety of other vague rules and regulations as well. We see the co-optation of some conservatives in the Islamic community, and we see others being outlawed. And more, more generally, I think we've seen Jokowi amass a lot of power. So these days, three quarters of the Indonesian parliament is in Jokowi's coalition, compared to just 40% when he was first elected president in 2014. So this centralization of power, the fact that many business owners, many media tycoons have come behind Jokowi in his second term at the same time, I think has led to a sense of you having no opposition in Indonesia, as well as government critics being persecuted, which does look like a turn back to the ways of governing in, in the old days. I think a number of Indonesian academics and other activists have compared Jokowi, in a sense, to the new order period, to Suharto's style of government. Not in every way. I think there are limits to this um, comparison, but there's certainly something there. But the way I try to understand it, it's not that Jokowi is an authoritarian wolf in sheep's clothing, that this was his plan all along, but he's just so focused on economic advances he's so his view of government is so narrow that he just reaches for whatever levers of power he thinks work and i think it's the case that the military and, and the police are two of the institutions that are more able to get things done in a, in a general sense many of the other ministries are really caught up in internal bureaucracy in infighting between the ministries what they call wonderfully ego sectoral in indonesia or sectoral or ministerial ego which is a, a brilliant term so I think he looks to the police and military as guys who can just get things done, restore a bit of order, even help him push ahead with his economic plan. So he's looked to the military to, to increase rice production, to distribute fertilizer. Um, he's looked to the police to help communicate government policy. So really, I think, damaging to the reforms post-Sahato that took the military and, and the security forces out of, of explicit politics. But I think he's doing it more instinctively than deliberately. And I think, again, for the military and, and the police, it's less a case of them trying to secretly have a, a coup via the back door and more just opportunistically individuals and to a certain extent institutions sensing the ability to get more power, to amass more influence in the system and taking that up. So overall, I think it is a bit of a concerning picture, but it comes about more through accident, if you like. And I, I think a sense just lastly that Indonesia wasn't as reformed after 1998 and the fall of Suharto as people thought it was. So while the electoral rules of the game were changed to allow these free and fair contests, which helped Jokowi come to the top, many of the, the players, people like Prabowo and other former general Waranto and Luhut, another former general, uh, many of the institutions um, like the military and, and others really stayed in the game of power, despite what people thought had happened in 1998. But again, I would argue that was, in a sense, a necessary compromise to allow a smoother transition to avoid the sort of mass bloodshed and instability that probably would have accompanied a much broader effort at revolusi, revolution, not reformasi, in 1998. For so long, the Indonesian military were the, the bad guys, I guess you'd say. But since the fall of the new order and, and reformasi, the bad guys seem to have become the Islamists. 
Islam in Indonesia has taken a conservative turn since the end of the new order. Can you tell us about Jokowi's view of the place of Islam in Indonesian politics? It's very hard to get a sense of his view of the place of anything in Indonesian politics because as a, he's a man who, who leads through action and through symbolism more than through speeches. So, of course, he, he's many times kind of repeated the, the founder's language about Indonesia being a tolerant country and, and a pluralistic nation. Um, but he also obviously embodies the sense of, of Islam as the dominant religion of, of more than 80% of, of Indonesians. And I think he's just shifted with the political winds on this one. My sense personally is that he is his own leanings would be more pluralistic. I think we see that, and as I said earlier, his his deputy in Solo, his deputy in Jakarta were Christians. And in fact, probably the most important number two, if you like, today is not his vice president, the conservative cleric Maruf Amin, but his minister of maritime affairs, Luhut Panjaitan, who himself is a, a Christian as well. So it's interesting that in his own personal governance, we see Jokowi uncomfortable, I think, with the hardliners and comfortable with a more kind of pluralist setting for Indonesia. But as you as you said, Patrick, I think since 1998, with the flowering of public debate, the, the space uh, for civil society and organization in Indonesia, I think that has led to a concomitant flowering of, of Islam in Indonesia um, and a certain sort of conservative turn. I mean, it's hard to know for sure, but if you look at survey data, if you look at what people say about the number of women wearing the hijab, if you look at um, other factors, it does seem that certain degree Indonesians are becoming uh, more religious. Some would argue that's the case for all religions in Indonesia, although, of course, Muslims dominate their 80 plus percent of the population. But I think it hasn't necessarily translated into politics. So actually, since 1998, the vote share of the broadly Islam-aligned parties hasn't really moved that much. It's never really got above 30%, I think, of seats in, in the parliament. But actually, you have seen this strange phenomenon of sometimes the, the non-Islamic so-called nationalist parties pursuing Islamic regulations more often than the Islamic parties. So in the last election, the most sort of overtly Islamic party, which is called PKS, you know, their main campaign promises were to make it easier for people to get a motorbike license and to reduce the motorbike tax. And meanwhile, you had a number of nationalist parties campaigning, calling for local Sharia regulations in various parts of, of Indonesia. So I think it's quite a confused political picture. More generally, there is this kind of social shift, I think, if you like. But it's not really clear how that's translated into politics. But Jokowi obviously sensed there was a need after the Ahok movement to protect his flank from these conservative forces by, you know, bringing one of them into into his cabinet. But at the end of the day, I suspect he's much more uncomfortable with these conservative figures and certainly the hardliners at a personal level. But he's someone who is ultimately a, a political survivor who will do what it takes to stay in office like every good politician. Democratization is such a huge theme in studies of East Asian states. You know, academics and journalists are always asking, is such and such a country becoming more or less democratic? But when we think about the history of democratization in Europe, it takes really the best part of a century, and in some cases, you know, a lot longer than that, before nations become fully democratic. Your book, there's, there's a, I think, a strong historical theme, and you, you have a historical background. Do you think it's meaningful to talk about democratisation in Indonesia advancing or regressing, you know, in just a matter of a few years? I'm sceptical of that. And that's my concern about, you know, putting too much emphasis on the authoritarian turn and losing also losing sight of some of the comparative perspectives regionally as well. 
Um, as, I, as I suggested earlier, if you, if you look at Indonesia's transition since 1998 and just 22 years, they have established really fantastically well-organized free and fair elections, particularly for the presidency. I think the local elections, there is more corruption and vote buying, etc. But there's still a certain degree of transparency in the system, which I think is quite remarkable. I've been lucky enough to see it on the ground on quite a number of occasions and also to see the extent to which Indonesians embrace their democracy. Very, very high turnout rates that would put um, certainly America and many other Western democracies to shame. So it seems to matter to Indonesians, even if their view of democracy isn't necessarily the same as as Western journalists or, or academics or, or politicians. But I think we, we have to analyze the trends because we want to try and make sense of where things are going. So it's understandable that people try and see these shifts. But certainly, I think it comes down to a certain degree to perspective. I mean, if you compare Indonesian democracy to 10 years ago, I think it's a bit of a disappointing picture. If you compare it to where people thought Indonesian might be as Suharto fell from power when there were these predictions of mass violence across the whole country, the balkanization of Indonesia, fears of an even worse military dictator emerging in the aftermath of some sort of coup. And um, I think Indonesia's done rather well. And I think we have to remember that this is only Indonesia's second experiment with democracy. The first was very short. And I, I do think these these questions take a long, long time to resolve. So while I think it is reasonable to try and analyze things in the short term, we shouldn't lose sight of the the longer historical perspective and just how difficult it is to build a nation state out of the the arbitrary limits of Dutch colonial rule um, in such a short period of time. And Indonesia has been through so much in its 75 years of independent history, many violent Islamist uprisings, coups, attempted coups, failed coups, mass murder of hundreds of thousands of people in 1965 and 66, accompanying Suharto's uh, taking over of power from Sukarno. So I think Indonesia has gone through a lot. And when you look at it in that context, I think it's not doing too badly. When you look at it in comparative context, it's not doing too badly either. It's good to study what's happening in the short term, but try and remember that, yeah, these are really difficult challenges for any nation to overcome, but particularly such a big nation, such a complex nation, it's always going to be really, really difficult. And and these things take time. Zooming out a little bit now, at a time when countries in Indo-Pacific are giving a lot of attention to China's apparently increasingly assertive foreign policy, you write that Jokowi doesn't seem to have a great deal of interest in foreign affairs. And his view of Indonesia's relationship with China really emphasizes the economic benefits that it brings. And you've got a great phrase for this. You call it friends with benefits. Can you talk about Jokowi's view of China? Yeah, it's, it's a really good line. And I have to credit it. It does come from Jokowi himself because the previous president, Susilo Bambang Yudhoyono, SBY, um, he talked often about Indonesia having a, a thousand friends and, and no enemies. And early on in his presidency, Jokowi was asked by local journalists how his policy would be different. And he, he responded saying something like, what's the point in having all these friends if we don't get any benefits? So friends with benefits, that's really what he's searching for. And I think this relates back to his upbringing, his experience, his formative years as a, as a furniture maker and then as a, a city mayor. He's a really practical politician and he's had this focus on pushing economic development. So I think he senses probably quite rightly, at least in the short to medium term, that any efforts to dabble in the increasingly fraught great power politics of the region is likely to bring a lot of risk for Indonesia, um, in the short to medium term anyway, and not much benefit. 
And certainly in China, he sees a country that's done a, a great job of developing its economy, that's done a great job of developing its state-owned enterprises um, and its infrastructure, which are things that are close to his heart. And he sees a lot of opportunities in attracting Chinese investment, which tends to move more quickly. I think a lot of Western investors want to see those liberalizing reforms, uh, which are so difficult to achieve for the reasons we've discussed in Indonesia. Whereas I think in Chinese, from Chinese companies, both state-owned and private sector, um, they're much more happy with a kind of transactional view, getting things done, paying bribes where necessary, working around the rules, moving quickly. And I think that appeals to Jokowi. I think it also speaks to you know, his sense of, of what's important. In his first five years, he didn't attend a single UN General Assembly. He sent his vice president, but he did like to go to APEC to the G20, to forums that have a more economic focus where he senses there's an opportunity to sell the Indonesian economy. So I think he had it. He's taken a slightly different tack, if you like, from SBY. But I think we have to understand he's still well within the broader bounds of Indonesia's foreign policy stance of being independent and active. And that really implies no alliances, no formal alliances with other countries trying to stay out of these big, tricky questions, saving Indonesia's sort of freedom of action, if you like, retaining its strategic autonomy. I think the danger there is sometimes it doesn't look just uh, independent and active, but passive and constrained. But at the end of the day, it's not a massive shift in overall setting from, from SBY and previous leaders. I think it is a slight shift in, in emphasis and style. But Jokowi sort of embodies that idea of Indonesia just thinking, what's in it for us to wade into these issues with China and the US? We're by and large, you know, one of the furthest away from China. There's a very small maritime issue in the far south of China's nine dash line claim, which overlaps with part of Indonesia's exclusive economic zone in what Indonesia calls the North Natuna Sea. But it's very limited to the sense of why, why antagonize China. But quietly, I think you can see where Indonesia's settings are, are more aligned in certain directions, not to the extent of alliances. But for example, Indonesia, very open to Chinese investment. But if you look at the Indonesian military, it does far more with the Australian Defense Forces and the US military than it would ever do with, with then with the People's Liberation Army of China. Um, so you can see this, this hedging, if you like, from Indonesia. So it's quite subtle. It's there. And Jokowi ultimately doesn't want to do anything that will jeopardize domestic growth prospects. So now, for example, we see him promoting trials of the Chinese vaccine uh, for the coronavirus in Indonesia. That's just a practical method. That doesn't mean that Indonesia necessarily wants to get behind China on the South China Sea. But Jokowi believes, and rightly, he needs a vaccine that works to help him tackle the problem. China is offering to help trial that in Indonesia and roll it out. So he works with them. On the next issue, it, it might be different. And there is a, a broader question, I think, that some of Indonesia's foreign policy thinkers raise about path dependency, that this attitude is fine in the short and medium term, but is there a risk that in the longer term it forces Indonesia into China's orbit closer and closer? I think that's a, a very pertinent question, but probably not one that animates Jokowi. The book's subtitled The Struggle to Remake Indonesia, but the more we get into the book, the more the older themes from Indonesia's history seem to arise, and we've, we've touched on them already the ambivalence about liberalism, the place of Islam in the country, the ongoing influence of the military, even you could say the dominance of Indonesia's politics by, by Javanese leaders, at least at the top. So does Jokowi actually represent continuity with Indonesia's past rather than a break from it? I think he represents both. And that's, that's the problem. I mean, he is, he does want to remake Indonesia. He does have this 
I'm not even sure vision is the right word because it's much more loose. Maybe it's just a goal for Indonesia to be wealthier, economically more successful, better access to health and education services, a prouder, more influential, more stable country. So he does want to change the country. And I think in that way, he embodies ambitions of previous Indonesian leaders too. But the challenge is, yeah, he he does also embody a different way of doing things. That And it's these why... That's why I call the book Man of Contradictions. It's not necessarily that Jokowi himself is purely full of contradictions, but he embodies these broader tensions, if you like, that he was a democratic champion, but he's someone who was also forged by the Suharto era. That's where Jokowi comes from. So I think that's the challenge, really, for for every nation in a sense, right? There isn't anything unique to Indonesia in this. I think it's particularly challenging for a young post-colonial country that's so big and coming from such a through such a difficult past. But every country, in a sense, wants to remake it and finds itself constrained to a certain extent by its own history. And I think individual leaders, individual people can push things forward. Accidents can happen that push things forward or push things back. And it's the interplay, really, that I'm trying to get at between, I guess, sort of institutional structures, individual agency, and sheer luck. And I think that, that's the challenge, and that's what I'm trying to get at with, with the book title, that... There is a desire to push things forward, but it's not not easy. Another thing I wanted to ask you about was actually the format of the book. For our listeners who may not have read it yet, I can tell you it's a short but really highly readable book, and you can read it really in one or two sittings. I wanted to ask you whether you felt that this format suited what you wanted to write about, and uh, did it you know did it enable you to say everything that you wanted to say or, or not? It's a, it's a really important question and quite a difficult one for me to answer because I was simply constrained by the format. The Lowy Institute has a partnership with Penguin, which publishes this book and their special series. And these are shorter reads, as you say, designed to be read in, in a couple of hours on a, a lazy afternoon or, or a plane ride back when we got on planes. So that was the format I had to work with. I think it helped me in many ways, to be honest, to try and make the book shorter to try and deal with so much about the country and its history and its future and and the man as well in such a short space it's a good challenge and sometimes I think it's better to be shorter it forces you to crystallize things it forces you to leave out issues that are unnecessary I think it's helpful definitely for the general reader because it's a struggle getting people interested in Indonesia there's very few books for the general reader that have been published on Indonesia in the last 20 years. So I think to that extent, it was good. But of course, it, it limits you know, not just how deep you can go into the complexities, but it limits your ability to really describe things, to paint a picture, to go into the, some of the more interesting descriptions of people, of characters and events beyond Jokowi himself, simply because of the shortness of the book. So I think it, it helped in some senses. It made other things more difficult. But I, my intention wasn't to have the last word on, on Jokowi. I mean, it's the first uh, English language political biography, but he's only six years into his 10-year presidency. So there's a lot that could happen that could change. And I think other people will write you know, more comprehensive books later, particularly once he's stepped down from office and there's more ability to, to go deeper, to access the archives, etc. But I really wanted to produce something that was a useful guide for the next four years so that policymakers, investors, journalists, and anyone who's interested in Indonesia could get a sense of where things are heading in the next four years. So for me, it was really important to do that, to kind of have a go at the first draft, but understanding that there were limitations, there were gaps, and I really hope that other people will will come and, and fill those in. 
Before we conclude, we always ask interviewees, are you working on a new project and would you be able to tell us what that project is? Yeah, so I, I am. I mean, it's always a, a fine balance. And especially when you've had a big book come out, you know, it can be a bit difficult to move on to the next thing. But luckily, I had something up and running, which is really looking at the, the battle for the future of the internet in Southeast Asia. We see it's an increasingly contested space. I think for the, much of the last 20 years, if you like, as internet usage has grown in the region, it was by and large an unregulated space where people, uh, especially in, in many of the region's authoritarian countries and even the democracies with a lot of authoritarian thinking in them, including, I'd say, Indonesia, were able to speak their mind, to organize freely. But in the last three or four years, we've seen increasing contestation over the internet. Governments across the region bringing in regulations ostensibly designed to tackle fake news, um, other cybersecurity laws that really give the government, the police, huge powers to control what people can and cannot do online, particularly as it relates to speech, to political and civil society organization. And there's another element here as well as the governments and the people, which is the large um, internet platforms, the Facebooks, Twitters, and Googles of this world, and how they've shifted as well under a lot of pressure, not just in Southeast Asia, but in the Western world too, from governments, and the way they've shifted to somehow adapt to this new environment of more regulation. So I'm, I'm trying to do a comparative study across the region. And um, see where the internet is heading, which I think broadly is a much more constrained, restrictive space. And I fear there's a kind of unfortunate coming together in a way of the companies and governments um, agreeing to have a more censored and controlled internet, which is really going to reduce the space for, for opposition, for criticism, for organization in countries you know, which across Southeast Asia almost all have very constrained uh, civil society, very constrained media, very constrained space for political opposition. So again, quite an ambitious project, but I think it's, it's really helpful. There's a lot of great work on each country, but to be able to draw those threads together, especially in a region that's so important as a market for these uh, social media companies, but it's really important for setting the direction of travel, I think, for, for the internet going forward. So that's where I am at the moment. Um, a lot of work still to come on that project, but I think it's a fascinating one, which again, taps into a lot of the themes that I think I, I dipped into in the Jacoby book about you know, authoritarian thinking versus democratic practice and democratic ideals about, you know, the, the control of, of, of foreign companies and the degree to which they're allowed to have influence or to which governments push back and even the foreign policy questions, because I think it's undeniable that while China isn't explicitly exporting its model, a more sort of censorious controlled internet, I think would naturally drive, uh, you know, the governments of Southeast Asia more towards China's view of the world and its view explicitly of, of cyber sovereignty. Fantastic uh, project. We'll really look forward to seeing that come out. Ben Bland, thank you very much for joining us on this episode of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss your new book, Man of Contradictions, Joko Widodo and the Struggle to Remake Indonesia, published this year by Penguin Books. And to find out more about Ben's work, visit the Lowy Institute's website. And you've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. As always, thanks everyone for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, then you might also be interested in listening to other podcasts about books that deal with politics in Southeast Asia, like Lee Morgan-Bess's Behind the Facade, Elections Under Authoritarianism in Southeast Asia, published by Sunni Press in 2016. You can download or stream this interview and thousands more free of charge via the New Books Network website or iTunes. 